0: Father, it is a privilege to hear you speak to us through your word. We do ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see by your spirit, and that Christ would be exalted and lifted up in our hearts. We ask, too, as we open your word this morning, that it would prepare the passage we look at our hearts for coming to your table, our Lord, where we remember your life, your death, your resurrection, your return. We commit this time to you and we pray in your matchless name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. This morning as we begin to actually look at the text of Matthew, having done just a very brief overview, not so much of the chapter last week, as much as uh, the common ways that an understanding of the end of days of this particular age... Is going to come about according to God's plan. This morning we will introduce the chapter by looking at verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3. Now, as a Christian, I find it interesting that people are so willing to believe what appear to, I think, many of us as nonsensical or at least fanciful or groundless things about the future while ignoring or dismissing the very word of God, the one who Declared the end from the beginning who determines the future and holds it in his hand. It seems that people can get more fascinated with obscure statements of ancient times or Nostradamus or their horoscope than of Christ himself. And yet in the word of God we have the word made more sure as Peter said. It's more sure than any other word ever written or spoken. We have the very word of God that is living and active as God himself is living and active. Christ said He is the Alpha, the Omega, and God has declared for us the beginning and the end. Have you ever just thought and let that thought sink in to your mind that you know how everything is going to end, that you know the end of the story, you know what God's plans are, We have that here in Scripture, and we have it here particularly in Matthew 24 and 25, but really all of the prophetic word that God has given us in Scripture. Here we have a record by the Spirit of God of the words of the Son of God that were given to Him by the Father to tell us in part what is coming upon the world. And this should be then to us a great encouragement and instruction as we Noted last week, the purpose of understanding how everything is going to end isn't to be fascinated by minutia or to align yourself with some theological camp. It is, in the words of Peter, to produce in us holy conduct and godliness. It is producing us wisdom, a sobriety about this world. It is to direct and inform our priorities in this life. That's the purpose of it all. Now, this section is the last of Jesus' major discourses in Matthew. And it is, of course, then his last discourse before he enters into the final days of his life as he heads towards the cross. That will begin the story and the account of his cross in chapter 26 with the plot of the leaders and the betrayal of Judas. But here in chapter 24 all the way through the end of chapter 25, we have Jesus responding to a question by the disciples in which He lays out for us particularly the future of the nation of Israel, but also the entire world. And He lays out for us everything in between, in detail, that we are to expect about what He has planned for His people, His second coming. And the beginning of the millennial kingdom, it is, in the whole, a picture of terrible judgment. It's terrible judgment. And sadly that has been much of the history of the nation of Israel, our pronouncements of future judgment before God's great work of salvation. We read that in part this morning in Jeremiah chapter 29. It is also a portrait for us of the great evil of the world out of which that suffering against His people will come and the evil of the world that will provoke from God such cataclysmic destruction on this present earth. He says that in verse 21 of Matthew 24, "...there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will." speaks in verse 30 of the sign of the Son of Man coming when the tribes of the earth were mourned. In verse 29, before that were skies and powers of the heaven will be shaken. It is cataclysmic events. It is unique events and they are related to the destruction that is coming. Now having given a very general overview as I mentioned last week of eschatology, we now begin to examine the text itself. And we'll consider the introduction this morning in verses 1 through 3. Setting the context and the expectations of the disciples that prompt both their question and the answer of the Lord Jesus that will be explained throughout the remainder of the discourse. So let's begin in verse 1. And let's note first a short-sighted wonder. A short-sighted wonder. Or you could say a wrong focus of the disciples. And notice the circumstances first in verse 1. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. Jesus came out of the temple, Matthew tells us. And there is a sense in which this note is marking more than just the movement of Jesus, but pictures, in fact, His abandonment of the temple that had had long abandoned His glory. Jesus first entered the temple back in chapter 21... Verse 12, you'll remember, among the praises of the crowds. In verse 9, who were hailing him as the Messiah, the expected one, the son of David, the one who would bring deliverance to his people. However, as we remember, his first act was not to declare deliverance to his people, but it was to declare the corruption the spiritual corruption of his father's house. In verse 12, it says he entered the temple there and he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He said this should be a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. You have corrupted what was holy. You have made impure what God had given to be the pure worship of his great name. And in entering Jerusalem, he in a real sense had entered a den of vipers. Indeed, some people were coming to him for healing. Some were coming to him to sit at his feet and listen to his teaching. But the leaders themselves were incensed and they doubled down on their opposition against him from the very beginning. Verse 23 is a second mention of when him entering the temple. It says the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and they challenged his authority as they would do throughout. Continually challenging him, challenging him. And Jesus responded to each challenge with a comprehensive indictment and exposure of their error and their hypocrisy. And he foretold them again and again of the judgment that was to come upon them as a nation and as a people. He told them through parables. He said at the end of verse 43 in chapter 21, he warned them that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And then he follows up with more parables and as we know in Matthew 23 with these oracles of judgment. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. So far from the deliverance that they expected from Rome, Jesus pronounced judgment. Far from a time of messianic glory and the restoration of Israel, the Messiah rejected by the people would in turn reject them. There could be no deliverance for these people. There could be no deliverance for this nation in restoration because there was no brokenness and there was no repentance. He said at the end of verse 37 of chapter 23, though he was willing to gather them together, though he was willing to be that Savior to them, they were unwilling. They were unwilling And as it is with the nation, so it is with individuals. Until there is a recognition of sin, repentance, a recognition of the lordship over a person's life, there is no salvation. There is no salvation. They wanted religion without repentance and the laurels of the kingdom without the lordship of Christ. And that's, beloved, how many come to church and view religion They want it without the deep heart repentance. They want it for the benefits. They want it ultimately for the advancement of their own well-being, not for the glory of God. And so it was with the nation, and so He left them. Jesus' departure from the temple then is both a movement in location and a picture of the removal of God's presence before judgment. And this symbolism should not be missed. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. Ezekiel chapter 10, the Lord says this in verse 4. The Lord has declared the judgment that's going to come upon His nation because of their idolatry, because of their wickedness. He had beginning in chapter 8 revealed to the prophet Ezekiel the great iniquity and corruption of the people, the idolatry of the people, even within the Holy of Holies itself, turning their face away to worship false gods. And so Ezekiel has this vision of the glory of God that is leaving the temple before the judgment comes. He says in verse 4, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And then he said in verse 23 of chapter 11, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. In other words, the glory of the Lord had left. It was gone. It was now prepared, the temple was, for the destruction that the Lord would bring. And so it is here. Jesus had declared a judgment to His people. He now comes out from the temple and He is going away. And destruction is the next thing for them to expect. Notice then, secondly here in verse 1. Jesus came out of the temple, which is here, a picture of his leaving his people, leaving the temple to the destruction that is going to come. But the disciples missed it. So notice next the short-sighted perspective. His disciples then came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. They came to to point out, it says in verse 1, the temple buildings to him. This is both understandable and very sad. It's understandable because of the magnificence of Herod's temple. It was, in fact, a glorious temple as far as human measurements go. It was a glorious sight. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. One rabbi said this He who has never seen the temple has never seen a beautiful building. And that was a testimony not only of the Jews, but also of those outside of Israel. It was a magnificent structure now after the destruction of the first temple Solomon's temple in 586 around 586 BC a second temple was constructed you'll remember and when that second temple was constructed which was completed around 515 BC Ezra 4.12 reminds us or records for us that there were some among these crowds once the foundation had been laid for this new temple some were rejoicing those were the younger generation and some among these crowds were weeping why were they weeping they were weeping because they remembered the former glory of Solomon's temple and this was of a much lesser glory. Nonetheless, that second temple remained the temple of God's people in Jerusalem for a period of around 500 years. And yet at the end of that it was neglected, left in disrepair. In about 20 B.C., Herod the Great, known for his building projects and really his uh, talent for building projects began one of the greatest structures again of the ancient world. Now for Herod it was essentially to endear himself to the Jewish people and to exalt his own pride and reputation. This basic structure of the temple however was probably finished around 10 BC although the final adornments were not complete until 66 AD and it was indeed an impressive structure. The Temple Mount, the general temple area, was expanded to nearly twice the size of Solomon's temple. One has said that the square footage within this new uh, Temple Mount area would equal square footage of about 35 football fields. It was huge. It was so large that it required Herod to fill in some nearby valleys in order to expand this great foundation. There were retaining walls on the west and the north side that were approximately 1,600 feet high. And as you entered into the temple from the outside, there was sort of this ascending nature to it. As you went up further and further into the temple, to the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and then up into the temple proper area, there were these steps that you were ascending up and up until you finally, the priest, ascended into the temple itself, the holy place and the holy of holies. It was truly magnificent. The temple itself stood on massive blocks of white marble ornamented with gold. Josephus, an ancient historian, tells us that these stones were 67 feet long, 12 feet high, some of them, and 18 feet wide. And the temple itself, if you can imagine, stood 150 feet high in the air and the length was the same. Again, constructed with stones of white marble, large portions overlaid with gold. It could be seen from miles and miles away. Listen to this description of Josephus. Just to give you a mental picture of what's going on here. He says this. Now the outward face of the temple and its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes. For it was covered all over with plates of gold and great weight. And at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it Turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were coming to it at a, at a distance, like a mountain covered with snow. For as those parts of it that were not gilded, in other words, covered in gold, they were exceedingly white. Quote. It's a magnificent building. It's no wonder that Mark records for us that they said, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Luke said that some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. Indeed, it was magnificent. So it's understandable that as they were walking out, they would be struck with the beauty of this building, which at that time was maybe only 30 years or so away from its final completion. But their statement is also sad, of course. Because despite the great beauty, it was external. The temple and all of its beauty and all of its grandeur and all of its earthly glory was a picture of the nation of Israel itself. Beautiful on the outside, but inwardly, as he said of the Pharisees in verse 27, full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. It was spiritually corrupt. And that's the point they seemed to miss. It was a beauty that was only skin deep. It was a beauty that masked the true spiritual condition of the people. Indeed, it would be only days that they would turn from any semblance of affection towards Christ and be influenced by the leaders, many of them, to cry out for the blood of their own Messiah and their own God. It is a nation that, like the leaders, will characterize the church in the last days, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. In other words, there is a form of commitment to God, a form of religion, and yet they know nothing of its sanctifying and saving internal power. Its purifying power. And that was the nation. That's so many today. And this kind of short-sightedness had misplaced wonder was not only a problem of the disciples, again, it's endemic to our fallenness. We do the same things today. There is a constant tendency of men to be blinded by externals and fail to discern the true spiritual character of a thing. We do that. How many are impressed by a large crowd or large buildings rather than the spiritual integrity of a ministry? In fact, it has been noted that one of the primary reasons for those who had claimed some faith within evangelicalism or Protestantism to move over to the Roman Catholic Church is because of the grandeur of its worship. It seems to have a holiness to it because of the size of the buildings and the high church rituals and so on. They are not drawn by its message of salvation, but the grandeur of its religious expression. Deceived by externals, by what is outside And so it was with these disciples. So it is with so many today. Being deceived, looking at it in the wrong way. So Jesus, not softening the blow, cuts the feet out from under this kind of thinking. Look what he says in verse 2. The disciples point out the buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Literally, there shall not be left here a stone upon a stone which will not be destroyed. And this is a striking statement. And of course it burst the bubble of the disciples who had apparently learned very little from everything Jesus had been teaching them up to that point. In a moment, Jesus takes away from them a dreamy awe of the outward religious symbols and structure to the reality of its ultimate end. It may be beautiful and impressive in your sight, essentially is what he's saying, but it's odious to God. It's a stench in his nostrils. It's something that he hates. It's worship that is offensive to him. To use the language of Isaiah 1, it is like the worship of those who resemble more Sodom and Gomorrah than the people of God. You're missing it. And not only he not only is he not impressed with it, but neither is his father, but in fact, far from being impressed, are deeply saddened by it. Listen to Luke 19, parallel passage of the same incident. He says, "or of this same time period." This is when he was entering in Jerusalem. But he says this in Luke 19. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And saying, If you had known this day, even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon you upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They're marveling at the wonder of the buildings, and Jesus is weeping over the coming destruction that is going to be brought by his own hand in the hand of his Father. How differently Jesus sees things from the way we so often see things. There are in the language of Luke sixteen things that are highly esteemed among men that are detestable in the sight of Of God. And we have much to listen to here, much to listen to. For we can be tempted in a similar way to view the world as well as the church through eyes that are very different than God's own eyes, to see things very differently from the way that God sees them and the way that Christ sees them. And I would suggest, particularly from our American perspective, Where things really aren't as bad as they seem. Or to take sin lightly in the fallenness that is paraded before us all the time. Or to have dreams that are more influenced by the American dream than they are from the word of God. To not see things as they truly are. There is much in this world that God supplies us with as far as blessings and good things. And yet we must remember this world is not our home. It is ripe for destruction and will be destroyed. And again, this should give us a sober perspective about our lives and about our world. It should influence our decisions and our desires and help us even with people to see them only as they are according to Christ. And so he warns them here of destruction. He warns them here of destruction. This is how God sees it. Not in the beauty of the structure, but in the destruction that is going to come. Look at the second part of verse 2. We mentioned it. I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. It's like saying, take a good, long look at it. It will not remain this way. Truly, I say to you, emphasizes the certainty of what he's going to bring. It's not a conditional statement. It is a statement that is absolute. It's already been determined. The destruction of the temple is coming. These things refers back to what he just said, to the temple buildings or what they mentioned, the temple buildings that they were marveling at. Again, he's referring to the destruction of Herod's temple. That would take a place in 70 .AD. I say again, because we've already addressed this, and Jesus has already addressed this, in verse 38, at the end of the woes, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Again, notice it's not God's house, it's not my house, but it's your house. Your house that you've perverted to your own ends, it's going to come to destruction. And so we've covered that in some detail. Of the terrible suffering that is going to come to Jerusalem at the hand of the Romans. Particularly the hand of the Roman general Titus, the son of Vespasian. Who's going to come when he's a general at that time against the nation of Jerusalem to inflict the final blow. We must remember and what God is making very clear to us. It's not ultimately a destruction that is coming at the hands of a Roman general. It's a destruction that's coming from the hands of God. It's your God who is bringing this to you. Your God whom you are supposedly worshiping who is setting His hand and His purposes against you. Now the seeds of this coming destruction were first sown in 66 AD with the rise of the Jewish revolt which was against Roman oppression, but that Jewish revolt had as much to do with the messianic fervor that was just rife at that time and was only fueled by all that had happened through the ministry and the life of Christ. There was a great sense that the Messiah was to come. There was a great sense that the One who would still finally deliver them from Rome would come. And again, they were still blinded to the reality of God's intentions for them and the true work of the Messiah and of His Son. As a side note here, it's interesting that many of the Christians who were living in Jerusalem around 66 AD fled, had fled there at the uprisings of this Jewish revolt, which some say was because of the prophecy that we'll get into later in verses 15-16 through 16 of Matthew 24. However, it might, that may have had as much to do with the strong Jewish persecution that was taking place at the time, but either case... It was a providential mercy of God and care for his people that he removed his people before he brought the destruction that he's speaking of here. When the destruction did come, of course, it was devastating. Titus laid siege against Jerusalem that led to intense, intense suffering and starvation, unimaginable atrocities. Delicate women were reduced to cannibalism. We noted it before, one woman who actually killed her own child so that she could eat it because of the great suffering of starvation. Men and women and children were killed by the thousands through starvation. The sword, burning, crucifixions and other atrocities. And all of that in fulfillment of what the Lord is telling them here. And what He said before, there is going to be a desolation, a total destruction The temple was looted, burned to the ground, utterly destroyed, and not one stone was left upon another. Again, it's a total destruction that he speaks of here. Now there were indeed some stones that were left upon another, but they were contained to the outer wall. Listen again to a description of Josephus one of the best testimonies we have at that time. He says, Now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or plunder because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple but should leave as many of the towers standing as were of the greatest imminency and so much of the wall as enclosed the city on the west side which is today the Wailing Wall. It's where the Jews gather to pray as they anticipate some Salvation and deliverance from God. He goes on to note, Josephus does, this was the end which Jerusalem came to by the madness of those that were for innovations, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among all mankind laid to ruins and rubbles. Now God had told them this was coming just as He had told them in the past, the destruction that was coming upon the first temple We won't turn there. Jeremiah 10, 9, 10-11, 26-18. He said there, it's going to be laid level. It's going to be leveled, all of this stuff that was for my glory. But when it ceases to fulfill that purpose, then it will be destroyed and it will be removed. First with the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and later by the hand of Titus. Now the temple is significant to be sure both at the time of the disciples and the role it will play in the future but the destruction of the temple would also bring something else that Jesus said to light. Verse 12, 6 of Matthew Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. The temple's destruction is not the loss of God's purposes but it is a pointer and sense to the greater purpose that it was accomplished in Christ, the new covenant promise of the Spirit who will indwell believers who collectively and individually make up the temple of God. Nonetheless, with this picture and promise of destruction laid before them, their previous infatuation with the temple building (laughs) decimated and their curiosity is piqued and so they come to Him in verse 3 and note some reasonable questions that they have. Verse 23... And sitting upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And go ahead and stop there. Go ahead and stop there. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives when the disciples privately come to him. Because the, the, the setting here is very important. And, it's, and the thinking behind their questions is very important here. The Mount of Olives is highly symbolic. Mark tells us that he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So as he's sitting there, he can view the temple off in the distance. If it was evening, he would have seen some of those magnificent sights described with the sun glaring off of the white marble stone and the gold that was ornamenting many of those stones. It was truly a glorious sight. He's sitting opposite of it, no doubt looking at the temple area. And the disciples come to him, come to him. Now while he's looking at it, no doubt with a sense of the same sadness that Luke records for us, knowing it's destruction, but also probably thinking of his future return and all that was going to come upon it. There was plans for the near future and plans for the far future. In the near future, it was what he just revealed to the disciples. It's destruction. It's decimation. Being left desolate that will take place in less than 40 years from that day. In the far future though, it includes... His return, and yes, another destruction, but also an establishment of His kingdom. We read it last week, but listen to Zechariah chapter 14 again, verse 4. No doubt these words of Scripture were in the mind of our Lord as He was sitting there on the Mount of Olives. He says in verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth, fight against those nations, as when He fights on a day of battle. And in that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. This is a great and cataclysmic time that is coming upon the Mount of Olives, the city of Jerusalem. And this is not simply metaphoric language. This is not only symbolism. As in fact, as we read last week, when the angel said to the disciples as they watched Christ ascend in the cloud, that says, Beware or be ready, he will return in the same way. And it will be with power. And it will be with glory. And it will be here on the Mount of Olives where he's now sitting speaking to his disciples. Now it's not likely that the disciples were thinking of all of these things when they approached him. But most certainly he was. And nonetheless they do come with a certain background. They do come with a certain understanding that influences their questions. Now... Emil Schuer was an ancient Jewish historian. He wrote a massive work called The History of the Jewish People in the Times of Jesus. It's a multi-volume work. He summarizes what were they expecting then. What were these disciples as products of their time? What were they expecting regarding the history or the coming of the Messiah? Let me just mention them briefly. He, he mentions ten points of Messianic doctrine at the time of Christ. But drawn both from the Old Testament and the intertestinal writings. Let me just list them for you. Many of them you're familiar with. First, they expected the appearance of redemption to be preceded by a period of special trouble and affliction. Special trouble and affliction. They expected, secondly, that Elijah would return to prepare the people for Messiah. They expected, third, that after the Messiah appears, He would establish His kingdom and it would be one of glory and it would be one of righteousness. They expected, fourthly, that Gentiles' powers would assemble themselves for a final attack against this kingdom. But that, fifthly, God would destroy this attack in a display of power. Afterwards, sixthly, Jerusalem would be renovated or restored after being trampled on by the Gentiles. Seventhly, that God would then gather the dispersed Israel from all the lands. And eight, that God would rule over a restored Israel through His Messiah King and the nations would overall acknowledge Israel's God as the true God. There would be number nine, then a renewal of the whole world. And then following that, number ten, a resurrection of all people. So in the mind of the disciples, they were, upon hearing about the destruction of the temple, expecting, oh, then the time must be near for the restoration that we're expecting, for the battle to take place, and for the enemies of God to be destroyed. Again, the Old Testament itself anticipated a time of both judgment and and future glory. And so they come to Him. And they say, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And the end or the consummation of the age? Now, in the disciples' minds, they're really asking two questions here and not three. Two questions and not three. They're asking this. When is the time of your coming coming? When is it going to be? What is the timing of it? The chronology of it, in in other words. And number secondly, they're asking, What is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The sign of your coming and the end of the age. When will these things be? Refers back to what Jesus just said regarding the destruction of the temple. The details we'll get into next week. But secondly, what will be the sign of your coming and the end or the consummation of the age? And again, these would have been two Uh, Two events, but in one short period of time in the uh, minds of the disciples. The Old Testament and the Jewish understanding of the end saw them all as essentially parts of one major event. In other words, they didn't have a category for two separate appearances of the Messiah. Not at this point. There was only one appearance. And there was only one establishment of the kingdom. And they're wondering, when is the sign of that going to be? When is that going to happen and how are we going to know? The time of the church, the time of the the Jew and the Gentile together in the one body of the Christ was a mystery that they were not yet aware of when they asked the question. It is the mystery that Paul said in Ephesians 3, the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. This would have been a very foreign concept to them at that exact moment. And yet, Jesus would unfold the details of this for them. And we want to make a note here, as we'll again explain, that they are often, or when prophecies are made, they're often given as one event, when in fact the history of their fulfillment tells us that they are separated by periods of time and other events to come. And so it is here, they're viewing this as one event, Jesus is going to separate that out for them and help them understand they did not conceive then of two appearances of the Messiah. They did not conceive of His first being rejected and suffering and then secondly coming in glory. Again, those were only one event in their mind. It's not unlike what Peter talked about in 1 Peter 1.10 when he says that those who prophesied of the the sufferings that were going to come upon the Christ and the glories to follow, that they were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So these were difficult things to be sure, although they should have understood more than they did. But in fact, they rejected the first messianic reality the nation did of His suffering for the sins of His people. And so they would... Come to understand that there isn't going to be a kingdom established right away. There isn't going to be an immediate glory that's coming to you as a people, but there is going to be a time of rejection. A time of rejection. Now, they asked here at the second part of the question, What will be the sign of your coming? The sign of your coming. A word you're familiar, familiar with, parousia, it has the basic idea of presence. Sometimes it's translated that way. Secondarily, it has the idea of arrival or a coming. Often used to speak of the arrival of a king or even a god. That's where we get Advent from, by the way, the Latin, Adventus. We get the second advent of Christ. Now, for these disciples here, it was a non-technical way of asking, when would the full reality of the messianic kingdom be revealed to us? Which, again, they expected to be right around the corner. Now, though they used it in a non-technical sense, Jesus is going to use this term more precisely later in the chapter. We're speaking of His second coming when He will return after this intervening age. And that's how Paul uses it, James uses it, Peter uses it, John uses it. Each of them referring to this parousia of Christ, this coming of Christ, when He will establish His presence fully on the earth and His kingdom. It is this coming of Christ that is our hope. It is our hope. That's what we're waiting for. The true glory and the majesty of the king of kings on earth. On, presence where, on in present on earth where his righteousness will dwell. The end of the age again is the consummation of the ages. The final ending of all of God's plan for this present time. When God wraps up and completes his kingdom plans in the Messiah. When the enemies of God will be defeated Righteousness will reign on earth. The glories anticipated by the prophets would no longer at this point be the hope of His people, but the reality that they experience. And again, this is the reality that we wait for. His coming. His appearing. We wait for this time. We wait for it expectantly. We wait for it hopefully. And this is the reality that we're still waiting for There is in theology the doctrine of imminence that's related to this. In other words, that the return of Christ could happen at any moment. There could be any moment that Christ comes for His people. It could be any moment where the onset of these final events that are going to be spoken of could come about. It could happen at any moment and we should live then expectantly, expectantly. But you know God has in His mercy as we wait on Him given us a continual sign and a remembrance, a way to remember the reality of this future coming, of His salvation. It's a sign that is a visible and a tangible reminder of His presence among His people and our union with Him by the Spirit. That great day when we are going to be with Him together, gathered as His people in the full reality of His presence and of the Father and of the Son and the Spirit, ultimately when we'll be with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. Do you know what that sign is? It's the Lord's table. It's the Lord's table. It's what we celebrate this morning. It's here that we who are truly God's people by the Spirit united to Christ who is manifesting His work in us by repentant faith and obedient love for the Savior and hope in His Word. And we are marked by those who rejoice in the rich fellowship we have with Him and one another. And all of that is symbolized in these elements. It's here that we remember the cost of our redemption, the hope of our salvation. We remember His death and giving His body, His blood spilled for us, and His resurrection in the anticipation of His return. It's here that we are to be renewed and encouraged and helped and strengthened unto repentance and obedience and worship. Remembering the great grace that we've received to be a part of the kingdom of God. So as we anticipate this hope, as we wait for His return, prepare your hearts now. Ruth will play. The piano, the men will hand out the elements. Prepare your heart. If there's any sin in your heart that has not been dealt with, that you're harboring, that you are unwilling to repent of and deal with before the Lord, confess that before Him now. If some of you don't know for sure that you know the Lord, that your sins have been forgiven, that you have put your trust in Him, that you see the reality of His life in union with Him, evident in your life, then don't take the table. You will take it unto judgment unto yourself. And we certainly don't want that. If it is a time, however, true worship with the Lord, seeing the evidence of His life in you, we invite you to take of it and remember with us all that Christ has accomplished for us. Let me pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for the testimony Your Word gives us not only of how to live righteously in this world, but the hope that we look forward to upon the return of the Son, a day that you have fixed and that you have appointed by your own sovereign plan. Help us to live with a proper anticipation, a proper hope, a proper confidence. Help us to live in anticipation with hearts of humility and service to you in the intervening time help us to live with hearts of childlike faith that trust you and rest in you and your sovereign plan for our life that serve your people and others to the great honor and glory of your name they said they will know us by our love that that is a testimony of your work in us the unity that we have in the truth and in the gospel and in christ And we pray that would be evident among us. We offer this time, this remembrance to you, in obedience to your command, and as an expression of our love and our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.